We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to this week's People I Sort of Know podcast, and we're going to talk to Stephen Head, the only three-time All-American in Ole Miss baseball history, now a scout with the Los Angeles Dodgers, friend of mine, somebody I've got to know over the last 15, 20 years with connections to Ole Miss. He was back as a director of operations a few years after he finished up his playing career and then also uh, was on staff for that 2014 team that played in the College World Series. So he joins us today. We talk a good bit about where baseball is at the college and the pro level, what's going on with the sport, and then also what's going on with him as well. We'll go through some different things from his scouting career. Again, he's going into his uh, his eighth draft this summer there with the Dodgers. So a lot of good stuff coming up with Steven. So we'll get to that now. Here's Steven Head on the People I Sort of Know podcast. Steven, thanks for uh, joining me as always. Good to talk to you. We were talking a few minutes ago before we uh, we hit the button. About your son, he's turned four years old. I'm seeing a lot of hand-eye in this. I'm telling you, I saw Facebook, Facebook friends, saw the video from last summer. You uh, you got something going on there. There is you can't hide talent, and some at least got pushed down a little bit. I think uh, with your uh, with your kid, I certainly hope so. Um, you know, I did tell Coach Bianco when they sent us, uh, you know, the welcome to the world gift I got for Col- for Colton back when he was born. I was like, Coach, you know, I know we have a good relationship, but let's not forget he he will not be cheap. Um, so <laughs> no, he's doing great. Um, obviously been a joy to, uh, to have him in our life and yeah, hopefully he, uh, continues on the path of, of the sports. I mean, his mom is a phenomenal singer. He likes to sing in the backseat. She's very good, talented in the music side. So I guess a rock star or a pro athlete outcome is, is either way is fine with me. So, uh, I'm really hoping for one of those two outcomes. I would assume, I mean, we were talking about kids and whatnot, just, you know, they get to be four like this. I mean, the, the personalities come out so much more, you know what I mean? Like they become, I mean this in the best way, they become humans all of a sudden. You're like really getting personalities and different things that, you know, you start bonding in kind of a different way at that point. Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, we we were, we talk, it seems like every week we talk about like what happened to our baby. Um, mm-hmm. he, you know, he's standing on the couch, dad, pantry, chips, you know, like just giving these directives out and, like what happened? You know, what happened to this needy baby that was totally dependent on us that now we just like lay the palm olives out for and whatever you need, bud, you know, we got it. I mean, just, uh, but yeah, it, it goes by really fast, but it's a blast. 
So you're on the road right now. You're checking out a prospect here in, in a little while. I, do I have this right? I was looking up something before we started talking. You've been in scouting now for seven years. Is that right? Yeah, I think this is going to be my eighth draft. So I left uh, January 1st. I basically was when my contract started in 2016. So I did the volunteer stuff up through uh, the fall of 2015 uh, and then took this job. And, yeah, it doesn't feel like I've been doing it very long. But I look at the years and, and what's happened, and I'm like, man, this is time is definitely flying by. Obviously caught on with the Dodgers, with the great organization. What what what, what was attractive about it to you? I mean, I, was it just simply to stay in baseball in different ways? Are you you know, I mean, you did the you know the kind of the volunteer GA thing with Ole Miss there in fourteen. I mean, what what was it about this particular situation and opportunity that that stuck out? Well, I mean, I don't know how much time you have, but uh, there is a, a little bit more to the story than just just leaving the volunteer for the uh, for the scouting job. Um, my wife and I, when I, I had to go back in 2011 and 12 to finish my degree, I had one more year left. I was a student assistant. Um, and I knew that I wanted to stay in baseball and particularly probably coaching. Um, so it just so happened after that year, Fuller Smith, who was the director of operations at the time, jumped into the volunteer tier spot. So the director of operations came open. I had been there for that year as a kind of a normal stepping stone into the coaching side. So I ended up just taking that opportunity. Well, while all of this is going on, me and my wife own a house in Southern Illinois and she has a great job there. And that's where she was at. So what people don't really realize is basically from 2011 to the time I took the scouting gig, we lived apart um, and just made it work. And, you know, working in the SEC and being a coach, even though I was a volunteer of the ops guy, I mean, you're there as much as the coaches are. So it's a very much a full-time gig. And um, so anyways, it was taking this job was a little bit of an opportunity. I think we were just kind of at the end of the rope of like, Hey, you know, it, we are married and we've been married for quite some time. Let's maybe live together for a, more than Christmas break. Um, so that was part of it. And then the other part too is um, the chance to go evaluate players. Um, that is such a big thing. And I think just like what college coaches needs, uh, that's a whole nother conversation on we can get into that, you know, just because you have recruiting experience doesn't necessarily mean you're any good at it, but we will, that's for a later time. Um but uh, so it was just it was just a good opportunity in terms of timing and career development to to take the job. And so uh, Damon Ionelli, who's a very famous scout uh, nationwide, honestly, but he's from Jackson, has scouted me in high school, drafted Seth Smith. Um, he had called me and just said, hey, the Dodgers have a have a gig in the Midwest. He goes, Illinois is one of the states. That's all I know. Do you want me to contact uh, their scouting director. I know him pretty well. And I said, yes, if you don't mind, please. Um, Cause I was just looking for an opportunity at that point. And long story short, I ended up getting hired by the Dodgers after doing some interviews with them. And, and to this point, the rest is history and I'm still with them. What does that interview process look like? I mean, obviously you had a, you know, hell of, hell of a playing career, but what does that, what does that look like? Um, well, you know, I just sat down with uh Two of the cross checkers with the Dodgers at the time, at which one of them was overseeing the position that I was trying to fill. Uh, and then with the scouting director, Billy Gasparino. And for me, I think the interviews now that I've actually had to interview candidates a couple of different times, I think it varies uh, depending on maybe like your experience, not necessarily playing experience or scouting experience, probably just general life and baseball experience. Mm -hmm. um, mine was very much just a conversation on baseball. Um, maybe some things I did at Ole Miss that would somehow relate to scouting um, and just general, like, I think we just had like conversations about players. Um, we talked about, we talked about Walker Bueller because the Dodgers had just drafted him and then, you know, we had played against him and I had a pretty terrible answer on him. I was like, Hey, he was just flat out better than us. I don't know what scouting lingo you want me to say, but he was really good. 
and he was way better than us. So, you know, like if that's what they look like, this will be easy. Um, but yeah, it's, it's different. I just went through a couple phone calls with those guys. And then, you know, I think I had enough people in my corner, you know, helping me out uh, in terms of just baseball connections that uh, it ended up working out. And I'm thankful it did. Looking back now, do you feel like you, you, you did you know as much as you thought you did, or do you kind of get in that and go, wow, there's way more to this than maybe I anticipated? I think there was a lot more that I knew that I didn't think I knew. Um, okay. Having oh. the role decks of, and not really just, um, oh, this player reminds me of this player or, or anything like that. I think it was just like, hey, you know, uh, I remember that guy in the SEC went in the third round, and, and this guy's like similar, and it, uh, it, it came back to me a little more than I think I thought it I thought it would. But uh, being, you know, having spent that much time in the best conference uh, certainly prepared me a little more for the area job than had I not done it, for sure. Do you ever wish or is there any ever the thought of getting into coaching at some point or did you, were you able to kind of put the, put that away? Well, I just – there's pros and cons to both. I yeah, mean, sure. Um, I think, like, I'll probably always have some sort of, like, coaching passion. I mean, I even went and did it for a summer with one of our minor league teams, uh, you know, before we had Colton, when I, when I could do that, I went and spent a summer with our short season team, which was just an absolute blast getting to work with the draft picks, seeing those guys. And now those guys are showing up in the big leagues. I mean, it's, it's a pretty cool feeling when you get to, uh, not necessarily like you had a hand in it, but you get to work with those players and you get to track their careers is a little different than scouting them, maybe never meeting the guy, you know, in person, um, unless you're the area guy and following their career. I think you just have a little more like vested interest because you get to know the kid. And, and that goes along with the coaching part. But uh, to say that I've enjoyed what I'm doing would be an understatement. I, when I jumped into this, I probably didn't. Uh, there's no way I thought I would like it as much as as much as I have. Take me up the the, the flagpole, because obviously you've, you've scouted and recruited guys. The Dodgers have drafted. You've, you've seen the experience of being the, the, the point man for that. But you know, I, I, not even at your current level, but lowest level on up, how does it sort of translate up to a player getting drafted? Somebody sees them, somebody else sees them. Kind of take me through the hierarchy pecking order of that. Yeah, so just the general, I call it the totem pole because when I was the uh, when I was the area scout, I was the low man, you know, and the, and the least, least uh, important guy in this whole process. But basically the way it is, if you think about just kind of like a pyramid system, is your, your area guy would be like the – the guy at the bottom, the cross checker would be a step above him, the national cross checker above me. And the window is starting to close to the pinnacle of the top uh, above the national, uh, you know, cross checkers is our scouting director, maybe our assistant scouting director. And then just some other guys that are special assistants that do a lot of different things. So just as the looks go up the chain, uh, you really start to narrow in on the player. And maybe where the player fits and the player's value. Because my value versus your value could be a huge range. Um, mm -hmm. But when five, six, seven of us see them, we're going to get a lot closer to a median outcome of the player and where he fits and things like that. So that's just like a really quick uh, way to kind of explain how this works. Now, from just like a tracking standpoint, like we were talking earlier, you really want to start building history with these guys uh, for sure the year before they hit, um, you know, their draft year. So for high school players, for instance, this this upcoming summer is so important for high school kids because they're playing some of the other best talent in the country. This may be our best chance to see them play against real good talent, especially in the Midwest, you know, where it's spread out, things like that. Some teams that guys can play just may not be very competitive. So you got to really try to build that history with the player summer, fall, spring. So when you go into the spring and the high school kid gets intentionally walked three times, 
you have enough foundation to be able to say, like, I still think this is what this player is, and I think this is what he can do moving forward. Whereas if you don't have that history and you go in and you get a look like that, you're just kind of left there, like, wondering what to do. Um, so it's the the process is a year long process for most guys. I mean, usually, and some guys it's even it's even longer than that. Um, like you know, just for example, Dylan Cruz at LSU, um, obviously a very good baseball player, but you know, he's been on the scene well before his senior year in high school. So there's a lot of history with a guy like Dylan Cruz. But that's an that's a I want to say extreme example, but that's a long range example of of a player's timeline. But you certainly want to build that history with them um, going into the spring. Yeah, because a top ten pick or a first round pick, depending on where your team is picking, you guys will have seen them for a while. They're known quantities for the most part. I get there's some anomalies that pop up, but how does that differ from say you're looking to take somebody in the 18th round? You know, at that point, they're not going to be scouted as heavenly. I mean, is there more of you have a certain need at that level? I mean, obviously everybody maybe has seen them, but your GM probably hasn't been in you know attendance to watch them. What is how does it kind of differ as you get farther down the draft? Well, it definitely is less looks on players. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, the I would say this is pretty typical of any good scouting department, um, is just trust in your guys and and trusting that um what they say and what they're seeing, especially later in the draft, um, you, you have to just go with it. There's a really good chance that the scouting director has not seen that player. Uh, and even though he's the one pulling the magnet, he's putting his trust in um, you know, who the guys who have seen that player. So definitely the further down the draft you get, and not not in all instances. I mean, some teams' 18th rounder could have been seen by everybody. He could have been the center fielder on Oklahoma's team last year. You know, yeah, they, yeah. they see him a bunch. So there, there's different examples. But, yes, the further away you get from the higher picks, uh, I think there's more trust levied on, you know, limited looks and more on your scouts. Is it a bit of a scoreboard a little bit to get your guys drafted? I mean, just even if it's in, if it's a personal competition. I mean, how, how do how, how do you sort of internally handle that 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 situation? Well, I think I think everybody with us has the good of the Dodgers over their own. Sure, draft. of course, of course. You know, there's a lot of like you know BSing, and I got yeah. you know post draft, no doubt about it. Or you know, I didn't get anybody pouting. Yeah. But it, all that's in good fun. We all have the Dodgers' best interest. Um, we do want to get players. That's a reward for being away from your family and and traveling and working your tail off, you know, all spring, all summer, all fall, uh, to hopefully be rewarded in the draft. But I, everybody knows, you know, a lot of it's luck. You may love this guy, but 29 other teams may love him, and they just happen to all pick before you. So especially us, since I've been here, we've been a very good big league club. We pick at the back of each round. Um, We hadn't had a first-round pick the last two years. You know, so like, hey, I love this guy, but we have no chance to get him. You know, he's going in the first round. We don't have first-round picks. So a a lot of it is luck, but that's where the good scouts can do damage in terms of, hey, uh, you know, the reason I like this guy, the reason I want this guy, boom, 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 and give the scouting director that trust to be like, hey, let's pop this guy in the 13th round. I mean, he's convicted on this player, and when he's this convicted, he's usually not wrong. So uh, I think that's just kind of like how most good scouting departments do it for sure. Yeah, I know it's way more complicated, but do you find yourself sort of following the guys that you were in on you know, as their careers go and kind of grade yourself on how it works out? Yes, but only if they're good. Um, yeah, forget oh, it otherwise. Yeah, <laughs> oh, man, I didn't like that guy. No, no. You're an NFL cornerback. You've never been beaten in the world. We're only going <laughs> to remember the next one. It's all good. Like, it's, well, it's great. 
there is a lot of checking box scores that happen, you know, like, and it goes both ways. You're like, oh man, this guy went way higher than I thought. Please be over four. And you pull it up, you see four of the jack. You're like, no. Um, but no, it, it works both ways. Yeah, you track these guys. But the, the really cool connection is when you get a player. Um, and I was fortunate enough to have my first big leaguer last year. Went to go watch him pitch at the, in Pittsburgh at the and just like seeing that, talking to him. Um, it's really cool experience just seeing guys that, that you tracked and you, you've developed a relationship with and not that necessarily scout player or best friends by no means. Um, but there is some ownership. You know, you did you did the job well enough. You got lucky in the draft to, to get your team in the position to get that player. And now he's turned into, uh, you know, a big leaguer. And then that's what you want. And that's that's what you hope everybody gets to experience because that's what keeps you going. I get that it's intangibles. It's tangibles. It's a lot of things you're looking at when you're evaluating a player. But from straight, what what's going on on the field? Are you following a template or some some sort, or are there benefits to? I mean, even your experience being a two way guy, where you had a little better understanding of all parts of the games and that kind of thing. I mean, what what does the actual scouting process look like when you're watching a player? Um, I think everybody probably has their own personal formula, and it takes okay. some time to maybe like like develop. Um, I, I kind of noticing, noticed myself last year kind of step back and I was like, I didn't necessarily know that I liked this particular type of player, but it seems like I'm always liking this particular type of player. Um, so you just kind of find things that you like. Some guys love guys who can just play the game. Like they're looking for like the instincts and the skill on top of the tools. Some guys are just Give me the tools, send them to player development, and see what happens. Um, I think everybody has a little bit different, probably formula or thing that they like. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's it's just kind of different for everybody. But um, you know, pitchers, hitters, um, obviously different formulas. Uh, but you know, for us, I mean, there's always like projection or. Um, you know, skill level is the skill level are the tools enough for this guy's skill level where he can be like an overachieved type guy or are the tools so big and the skills so bad that like, hey, I just think there's like so much risk that this player is just never going to get to it. Yeah, he's tools, athleticism, but like there's, you know, so there's just so many different ways to do this. And and honestly, you don't even know if you're right or wrong for basically like five years, <laughs> you know, once these players kind of pan out through the minor leagues and in their pro careers and their development. Um whether you're really right or wrong. I think you just try to develop something that uh, is hopefully more right than wrong, more times than not. And as a department, we do that pretty well. I don't think we probably have recreated the wheel, even though our player development and the players that we've pumped out have, have been very good and maybe better than when we passed them over. Um, so people are kind of touched on our department as maybe being like ex just this level of what we do, but – I don't really know if we just do it any different. We just kind of have a formula that we like to follow for the most part and things that we value, and we tend to tend to gravitate towards that type of player. You mentioned Dylan Cruz. Obviously, a lot of guys like that are at the top of the draft that, barring something unexpected, you're never going to be near that with where the Dodgers are most likely you know, going to draft this year, most likely going to draft most seasons. Do you guys – I mean, obviously, you do your cursory homework, but do you sort of get off players like that when you know that they're not in a range to where you're picking? For sure. By some point during the year, we will yeah. just like, hey, this guy's going ahead of us. I mean, we felt pretty good about that with Cruz. Um, not that we went out on a big limb there. Yeah. Um, 
But, you know, like a player like him, for instance, is still going to get scouted by everyone no matter where they pick because of the team he's on. Um, but, yeah, I think uh, we, we do like what we call midpoint meetings and we kind of get together and start like, hey, this is where this player is trending, this player, this player. And, you know, we try to try to figure out because there's only so many days. Who do we need to spend time with? Who don't we need to spend time with? So there's a little bit of a balancing act. Uh, but there is a – you know, early in the year, we we go hard at everyone because you just never know what will happen. Um, you certainly have an idea of who's probably top of the draft type talents, but until the draft happens, you you know, there's no guarantees that that's where those players will will go. But as we get closer to the draft, or I guess more towards the end of the season with the later draft, yeah, you start to start to chip away at uh, guys you think are going to be maybe in your range, and start to cut bait with guys that are just playing too well, performing too well. Uh, that aren't just going to be in play where we pick. Yeah, I mean, you know, because pitchers, I guess, be more likely because you always got, you know, a JT Ginn or somebody who gets hurt and they fall a little bit and things happen or or, or whatnot. And that kind of led me to one of the reasons I want to talk to you today was even in college, I feel like more and more, and I've been doing it, I think this is year 18 for me at this point, is fastball slider, everybody throws hard. I, I know you you and I, this has probably been a year ago, which might, you, you know, you're at some showcase or something and everybody's still at 97 miles an hour and that's all, all there is to it. Is there a place at all in baseball for the thumber anymore? It's harder. Uh, the number one predictor of success, despite the guys you see on Twitter that say throw strikes, is velocity. Okay. So uh, when you just don't have much time to hit, guess what? You don't have as much time to figure out if it's a strike. So uh, you got to command it and you got to change speeds. Well, yes, but there is a threshold to where velocity just flat out beats hitters. Um, So if you can meet that bar, good start. Right. Um, But yeah, it's, it's just harder. You, you go to instructs, you go to these minor league games and these backfields and it's just every arm at every level is a minimum low nineties but probably in the mid-90s. Heck, left-handers are throwing low mm-hmm. 90s, mid-90s now, especially these bullpen guys. I mean, it's it's just crazy the velocity that these guys have. Um, thumber is a, is a tough way, way to put them because that, it tends to mean, like, no stuff. Um, pitchability is something that I would probably say, like, if a guy can do that with stuff, guys can still out-pitch guys. But there, there is a seemingly a bar of stuff that needs to be met, as well as the pitchability. The bigger the stuff, the less the pitchability has to be. Um, now in college, it absolutely can still work. But uh, when you get to the much tighter strike zones, professional hitters one through nine, it certainly becomes much tougher. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. 
Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Not it, it, to it, say it happens, but it, it is harder. And it feels like the trickle-down, though, is what I'm seeing in college because what you're getting is you're seeing who's getting drafted. You're seeing what the major leagues looks like. Well, suddenly velocity becomes that more premium all the way down. Everybody's just simply trying to throw harder. I mean, I, you know, I'm not a doctor. I know there's a lot of different discussions about this, but it, it has to have some impact on how many Tommy Johns we're seeing at this point. There's no way it doesn't. Um, I, I guess the point is, you know, at what point does that not necessarily course correct, but does is that just simply where we are for years, in your opinion, or is there some sort of pendulum balance? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if we'll really ever swing back because, like I said, velocity is the best predictor of success, mm-hmm. especially you know. Um, there's other things too. That's a very simplified version of it. Um, but kids are throwing harder than they ever have. I mean, just the stuff that we see on a day to day basis, just from high school kids, would blow your mind. Just the talent of these kids is so high now. Um, the velocities are that, you know, I don't, it's hard to say with the injury risk. I mean, it's not that kids are just selling out for velocity. I mean, I guess that could be part of it, but they, these guys train so well now. The, the weight room stuff that they do is so specific. We just, I say we, like the athletics community knows how to develop an athlete like never before. And these kids are just getting to their like peak athleticism, the way that their bodies move. They just have figured out how to be really efficient. And along comes the velocity. Now you can get into the debate and I'm not a doctor. Like, are they physically ready for that type of velocity or, you know, this, that, and, you know, that ligament is not necessarily a muscle or it's not, you know, it, it, you can't train it and develop it and make it stronger like your quads or your bicep. I mean, it kind of is what it is. And there is, you know, stress that gets put on that. And obviously the harder you throw, the faster your arm, probably the more stress. Um, so I don't know what, if it'll ever like swing back or if we just figure out a way to maybe train the arm better, I'm not sure. But um, I would say that velocity and stuff is here to stay just because kids, are that athletic now that they just know how to how to do it. In your evaluations, your personal opinions on when you're scouting kids or you're looking at kids' histories or what's going on with them, Tommy John in the past, an MRI that probably indicates something could happen in the future. I mean, how do you sort of grade where their, their arm health is on what you think? Does that matter? Uh, yeah, I mean, it does matter. Yeah, especially past Tommy John's or somebody that's like currently injured. Um, you know, take Hogland, for instance, a couple years ago. You know, he mm-hmm. moved in the draft because of his injury. Um, but Tommy John, I don't think, is frowned upon probably like it was 15, 20 years ago. Sure. It's a pretty simple surgery. Uh, with the rehab, these guys are, are healthy, and they're coming about the other side, you know, equally healthy or, or 
equal talents when they come out the other side of it. So the the tabooness of it, I guess, is, is gone down for sure. But it does impact your draft. I mean, you know, Gunner's a good example of that, but uh, didn't impact him a ton. He still went really yeah. well. I'd love to have gone where he went. Um, but, yeah, so that's part of it. But, uh, you know, we go and see guys with what we consider, like, really good arm action deliveries that end up having Tommy John within a year or two. And then you go see some guys who are like, man, there's no way this guy's going to stay healthy. And then they pitch for years. Uh, I wish I knew. I'd probably have way more money than I have now if I could figure out that piece of the puzzle. But, um, yeah, it, it's tough. You just got to try to place the best bet you can. It's been, uh, it's been, well, I guess, speaking of 18 years, what, uh, what kind of prospect would you be in 2023? How the game's changed? Ooh, um, I probably, as a position player, would be viewed in the same light. Yeah. Any hitter with some power that, you know, obviously didn't work out all that great, but probably uh, SEC performance. Like, I would probably go about where I went. Okay. Um, now, as, as a pitcher is where I wish I could have um, done maybe today's game because these guys are so oh. good at velocity and uh, how to be efficient movers. And I was a big-time, like, all-arm thrower. I, I used uh, – this is getting into it, but guys now really know how to use, like, their – how to hinge on their back leg and to just – they call it, like, ride the slide and, and not be quad dominant, meaning pushing off your toe and using the, your quad as opposed to using your hamstring, your butt, to create the velocity and that. I, I pitched, like, off my toe, off my quad. You know, I was, like, mm. as inefficient as I could be, but I had some arm strength. Um I would love to train the way that these pitchers train now, just to to see if there was more velocity in there, and and you know to see how hard I could throw because I was I was big and strong, and I had some velocity for back in the day. On occasion, with a tailwind, I could get a nice number, um, but my, my arm was always sore because I was a you know all arm thrower. I was just really inefficient. Um, the hitting hitting's changed a little bit. It's now a little bit more lift plane as opposed to. When I sure. played, it was like you got to work the ball the other way. There's hits of hits to the opposite field. Well, there's better hits pulling over the fence, you know, um, and and working on your swing plane to get the ball in the air. But I would love to have trained like a pitcher does now. So sure. you think you might have had four more five ticks in you? In I the right like that much, but I think my consistent velocity could have certainly been closer to my peak velocity. You know, okay. I could give you a ninety four, and then a day later give you that eighty five. You know, okay, put some big swings in my velocity. I saw a uh, an article this morning, and I, I get that we're not even one fifteenth through the way of the major league season, but I think the Guardians are on pace for two hundred and eighty stolen bases. Uh, the Yankees have obviously stolen a lot of bases to this point. Um, a lot of reasons for that: the 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 limited uh, throws over to first, the clock, a lot of stuff. But um, is that something that actually will change the game? In your opinion, I mean, where do where do we sit from that? Of is that going to change any type of player procurement, the way the, what you look for in a player in different ways, or is it simply just the exact same sort of profile of a roster, but something else that's added to it from a from a playing standpoint? I wouldn't necessarily say the stolen bases has changed anything, but okay. I certainly think the shift has. Um, okay. I'm a, I'm a fan of the shift. Um, one, because if I was playing in today's game, I don't think I'd have ever gotten a hit. Um, just stack everybody over there by second base. Um, but it brings the athleticism back into the game. It, br it brings the guy having value at his position back into the game. Um, I'm, I'm curious to see like how the draft responds to these new changes. Does a guy that's an elite defender and, and those guys still always go pretty good, but like 
now that that is even more important in the big leagues, is there a little like give and take on the guy's bat? Because there for a while it's just bat, bat, bat. We're just going to stand you within three feet of where 86% probability this guy's going to hit the ball. As long as you can catch it, we're fine with it. You don't have to have range, whatever. Um, now where there's space and there's holes, uh, the athleticism, the range, the athletes, it comes back into the game. Um, I'm actually curious to see from a draft standpoint, like how teams respond to guys with maybe some bat questions, but really premium defense. Does, do, is their value now ticked up compared to, you know, the 2020 draft, I guess. And is that something that we could see immediately or is that something that probably you see in the next couple of drafts as the sample sizes go and teams kind of start their books from scratch? Yeah, I would say it's going to, you'll see a couple years of it for sure before you have like the full database on it. <clears throat> you know, you got to get through this year to really see like what is the impact of, of having that d- defender? Is it, is it outweigh a little less bad or is the bat still more valuable than the, three defensive runs say I'm just making up numbers but yeah teams will sure. teams will quantify that figure it out to kind of figure out the value the, the beauty of baseball and the baseball draft is it's really never a necessity um because these guys are so far away from the big leagues um there's so many trades trade value it's not like the NFL or NBA where that guy is going straight to that team and and plugging a hole so from the draft it's really just talent acquisition mm-hmm. more so need now I'm not saying somebody doesn't draft somebody out of need but probably on the whole, you're just like, hey, this is the best player still available. Let's take him. And even if we got a Mike Trout's our center fielder, why wouldn't we just draft a center fielder? I mean, worst case, like we can trade him, you know, yeah. get a big league player. So there's a lot of just talent acquisition, I guess, in the draft. Yeah, I, I, I guess that, that 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 makes sense to me. You know, we mentioned a second ago you pitching, hitting, all these different things. There haven't been a ton of really, really successful two-way guys, frankly, since you. I mean, look at Brandon McKay at Louisville, and then, you know, Keglin on at Florida now. Have you got a chance to watch him at all? I mean, he's hitting the ball eight miles when he's uh, when he's getting a hold of it, and he's if he can find the strike zone a little more, he's pretty competent as a weekend starter, too. Yeah, I, I've seen just the Twitter highlights. It's hard not to log on with all the D1 baseball guys and, and, and college baseball accounts I follow to see see some of the things that he's doing. I've never actually seen him. He could walk in my hotel right now and okay. have him- was but I did talk to Mark Etheridge a couple weeks ago when they played and I just talked to him about him a little bit but yeah I mean I I love seeing these guys do both because I I never did both because that was I was just better than everybody else at doing both I did both because as a kid when we played in the backyard you'd hit and then you'd pitch and I just genuinely liked doing both of them and just happened to be good enough to continue to do both so I'm a huge fan of these guys that are doing both, and I want more guys to go to pro ball and do both because if you load manage it well enough, you can do it. Now, Shohei is on a different level. He's a yeah, different man. athlete. I mean, it's like LeBron James. Like, these are just yeah. not guys, you know, but is there like a, a median type outcome? I know Lorenzen with the Reds um, or was with the Reds. I'm not sure where he's at, but he would hit. He would pitch. You know, I think there's definitely more guys that can – maybe find a small balance of, of doing both. I'd love to see it. And especially him, he seems like the best one. Um, so yeah, I would be all for it. Is it even just because even at the college level, it's just so hard to do because I mean, you know, Mike's one of the people that probably is more willing to do it than a lot of coaches, but even, even since you, there's only been a couple people that he's let try it a little bit. And, you know, you look at a high school team, clearly their best pitcher typically plays shortstop too, or plays middle infield and is one of their better bats. They're better athletes. I mean, is it, in some ways, at the college level, are we a little too 
against giving it some shots, or is it just how hard it is to pitch, especially early on in their career, that they focus on that? Yeah, I mean, I was left-handed and threw strikes, so I probably just got a bump from that. You know, being mm-hmm. left-handed uh, certainly helped. But, um, you know, the talent, you you still have to, it's kind of what we were talking about, you still have to meet a, a bar of talent to be able yeah. to do it. Uh, and to, to ask a kid to be talented enough to do both sides in the SEC is a pretty big ask. Um, and so I would say that's why you don't you see it less um, than you think you would. Just he's probably a good pitcher, but he's maybe just not an SEC type pitcher. Uh, or vi- or he's a good pitcher. He's probably just not quite an SEC hitter. You know, there's probably a lot of guys that are on just that like almost line. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I just grew up doing it, and fortunately, good enough to do do it both. I mean, certainly being left handed helped me. You know, if I was right right, I don't know if my 8990 is is enough, you know. And 8990 on a good day, you know. So I was kind of in that thumber group we were talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The thumber might have been the wrong word, but the 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 point was more, yeah, like the the 87 to 89 mile an hour right hander. It just feel like they're doesn't feel like they're getting a lot of juice today, no matter what their stuff is. They gotta have a really good secondary pitch. Because even even the command at that level or at that velocity, it needs to be almost exceptional, you know. Um because you know, eighty to eighty-eight on the inside corner is still easier to hit than ninety-seven right down the middle. Mm-hmm. Just so. you and I have talked about it off, and obviously, right after the end of the summer when everything went down. But I haven't had you with a microphone in front of you. What went through your mind last year when they won it? I mean, I was just pumped up for those guys. I mean, obviously, Mike, Clem, Laugh, um, some of my favorite people in the world. Just for just for them, you know, I didn't have any. Uh, any players that I've really had any personal connection to, I've been gone long enough that we didn't recruit any of those guys or anything like that. And actually, heck, Kevin Graham, I scouted in high school, you know. Oh, yeah. So, yeah um, so it's been gone a while. But, um, yeah, I think just one, like, for the school, uh, but more just for Mike, Laugh, and Clem, knowing how hard they worked, and especially last year, just the stuff they had to overcome. I don't think you can, like – you really can't explain it. I guess I need to read your book, which I have been meaning to do, by the way, Chase. It's all good. <laughs> so, uh, understand, like, what it took from a coaching staff to keep those guys uh, just believing enough, not believing they could win the championship, just believe that one more win get us this much closer to the postseason. And, I mean, could have they could have cashed that season in so easily. And I, I think that speaks way more to the coaching than the on-field stuff and and how those guys play. Just keeping them in the right mindset, keeping them believing when they had no reason to believe. Uh, And then to go and do what they did, which, you know what? I mean, don't let the Rebs get hot. That can be said for anybody. But, you know, they had two starters, a couple Mm -hmm. bullpen guys, and a great lineup. You really don't want to let guys like that get hot, and they did. And the rest is history for sure. You know, it's a lot of what, you know, it, it works for its coaches, its players in the dugout, leadership. I mean, they're, they're dealing with it right now. I mean, you know, it's uh, those guys that, you know, last year kind of held it together. They're gone. So now it's up to some other players to sort of keep this thing running the way the, the current season's going here. We're recording this on a Tuesday. They haven't played um, yet the rest of the, the rest of the week. Um, but it's, it's maybe the most compelling part of the book, at least to me. And Mike was very honest about it. It's, it's, I give him a lot of credit for the insight that he gave me following the season, but it was after the Arkansas series last year, and he had he he called in Laugh and Clem, and it wasn't even about the players; it was the coaches, and said, "Look, I get that your wives are worried. I get that we don't know what's coming. I get that 
we all could be fired out of here, but we've got to show up every day with the right body language for the team because if we show it, it's over. They're not going to be able to overcome that. They're going to tell that we are thinking there are negative things going on around here or whatever's going on. And it was a challenge to actually the staff to sort of lead the way from a just showing up level and the way that they're used to seeing you. And it, it obviously coincided with when they started turning it around and it wasn't that simple, but that was the period of time where there was a lot of crack showing and had the staff let a lot of personal stuff coming in the day to day, it would have, it would have spiraled and they definitely would not have won the national title. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad that's in your book and that's a big part of it because I think that's a side that people don't get to see of, of, well, especially Mike. Um, is how well in just the stormy seas he can keep it calm, you know, and, and portray that to the team and give them a sense of calm. It's just it's little things like that that you don't get to see. You know, you go to practice, you see the bunt defenses, you see whatever, and it's just baseball. But there's a lot of it that goes behind the goes on behind the scenes when you're trying to control the emotions of 18 to 22 year olds. You know, I mean, it's yeah. I thought that was for his 23 years and as good of a coach as he's been or however many years he's been there that I I don't even think there's any question that that's the best job he's ever done. How did your, obviously your perception of him was great because you loved him when you played for him and whatnot, but being in staff meetings with him, being on the staff to that level, you're being a little older, a little more mature. How did your sort of reputation, you know, relationship with him or even appreciation for him change over those, that decade? Well, I think you realize once you leave kind of, what happened to you? I mean, let's be like, I got yelled at by Mike for stuff other players did because I was the captain for two years. But he knew that I could take it mm-hmm. and would take it back to the team or, or however. But, yeah, I, like Mike was not nice to me when I played. Uh, <laughs> I got some great stories about that we can do off the record. Uh, yeah. Not that he was mean to me, but, I mean, he. I think he knew that he could, he could come after me and challenge me about – things that were happening on the team and and almost like get mad at me about other things because he knew that I, I could take it take it where it needed to go and and, and maybe fix things like that. Um, no, getting to see him behind the scenes, the, the best like way I can put it was when I was a student assistant. This was early in the year of 2012. I don't remember who we played. We played terrible, got killed by a lesser team, probably Arkansas State, something like, you know, just uh, it seems like they always beat us when I was there. But uh, I'm like, oh, my gosh, he is going to lose his mind. And, you know, he does the outfield thing, and he's pretty stern, and this is what we got to do. This is what we didn't do well. This is normal stuff. And we get into the locker room, and now I'm in the coach's locker room, that little bitty cubicle prior to the stuff they built. And I'm just, like, sitting there, like, head down, like, don't speak, don't breathe. He's so mad. And then he starts talking to us, uh, laughing about something else, and – hey, this is what we're going to do tomorrow. And, you know, hey, this is what we got. And just like totally normal conversation. And I just remember being like, this is how he is behind the door. Like I always thought like you couldn't even walk by that door after you got your butt kicked as a player much, you know, um, he just gets it. You're not going 56 and 0. Uh, and you just, you're always working the next day to get better. And it just, yeah, I'm sure he wasn't exactly happy, but it, it just kind of surprised me that I was like, oh man, I thought he was like not going to talk to anybody for three days after this. And here we are, like we're having normal laughing conversation in the locker room. He just gets it, you know. And I never realized that until I went back and kind of got on that side that uh, he just, yeah, he just kind of got it. Surprised me a little bit, to be honest. And, and, and he's calm, some, and he's gotten better at 
he, he admitted this to me a couple years ago. He's gotten better at recognizing sort of what makes each, each individual player tick in different ways. Some you yell at, some you really have to kind of baby a little more. I don't mean that negative way, but just really stay positive with and, and that kind of thing. And I, I think that overall, though, there's no doubt he is calmer than he was back with you guys. I mean, he he does not let them have it to the same level or the same uh, frequency. Because I was, I was laughing last year. They got beat by – Southeast Missouri, and it was ugly. It was like thirteen to one, and they almost got run ruled. Like just because the way the game went, they didn't, they didn't have the run rule in effect, and uh, he uh, he just let them have it. I mean, it looked like two thousand four, and he's waving his hands and he's screaming and cussing and yelling, and and they're all shell shocked because they don't see this. They're like, oh god, like this is not what I'm used to or whatnot. And yeah, uh, I I guess I was talking to laugh right after that, and I said. I said they didn't take that well, and he kind of looked at me and he goes, "Dude, that was a Tuesday back when I played. Like that happened every two weeks. That was like nothing to that at all, you know." And he, uh, but it's uh, it, it's different. He's learned a lot, um, and again, he's uh, trying to trying to keep he's it together right now. But he's just he's figured out the ebbs and flows, and that you know you just work every day to get to your goal, and there's going to be speed bumps. Yeah, but as a player, you know, at least. At least for me, I was always like, oh, boy, he's going to be really mad at me for that one, you know? <laughs> so. so when does this ramp up? What uh, what What's your schedule look like the next few weeks leading into, into the draft, I guess, relatively soon? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, it's just a rat race to the end of the season, basically. And um, for me specifically, mid-March all the way through April is uh, really tight on time just because these Midwest schools, they just start later because of the weather. So, you know, beginning of the season is a lot of mostly just college. Uh, with no high school mixing. They just hadn't opened up yet, except down south, Mississippi, Louisiana. But I have a majority of the Midwest. Those guys really don't get cooking until March 20th. So you're trying to, like, race to get your first look on those guys in an appropriate time. So this time of year gets a little bunched up uh, just because of the way the high school schedules work out. And it's a it's a good high school year in the area this year. So you got a lot of guys to try to go see and sort out and, and different things. So, but yeah, uh, end of April, uh, actually, yeah, end of April, starts to kind of like maybe slow down. You, you kind of know what you're trying to do or who you're trying to target a little more. Um, and it starts to – high school guys start to become a little clearer in terms of, hey, you know, I think he's really good, but he wants $3 million. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't have it. So, you know, things like that start to kind of sort themselves out. Um, and it winds down. But the, it really never slows down. This late draft, uh, we'll actually be doing work on the 2024 players before the 23 draft even ends. So – just for the listener, because I know they're curious, what states are you mostly operating in? Well, so my area would be Mississippi, Louisiana, Indiana, Illinois, Missouri, uh, Wisconsin, Iowa, Nebraska, Dakotas, Minnesota, and all of Canada. Sounds like a lot. Um, but yeah. They got this really cool thing called airplanes. So we get to okay. fly on those. Yeah, no. So it it's spread out. Um, it, it makes travel tougher just because it's windshield time. Everything's spread out. But uh it's a good area, especially having the two teams down south or the two states down south, you know, obviously from Mississippi. So I love getting back down there and, and seeing some of the good old SEC baseball. Did that play into why you have those states? I mean, your history there? I mean, is that something they try to do to some level? Uh, I mean, that was probably part of it, yeah. Um, but it, it kind of fits in more of the I can go south early in the year and see a lot of those guys down south while the weather is still really iffy and cold up here. So I can kind of I can kind of work south to north. Uh, and a lot of guys' areas are like that, south to north, just because of the weather. So you kind of start your there, start working down south and you move up as the teams open up, the weather gets better. So there's some there's some strategy to it, I guess, as well. Did you make a Canada trip? 
I'll let those guys come here. You know, they, okay. they always come. <laughs> Team Canada, they, they're really good. And the Canadian kids, they go out to uh, spring training and they'll play like the low level minor league teams and they go to Florida and do the same thing. So it's a really cool thing for us. We don't necessarily have to leave the country, make that trip. Uh, but the kids get to come and play some, you know, pro guys that are a little older than them. Of course, they love those trips or spring training complexes. So it's kind of a good gig for both of us, I guess. Yeah, well, I appreciate it, Bud. As uh, as always, good luck with the rest of your uh, your travel, and let's go ahead and get the uh, let's get the kid locked up. I guess that's the class of what twenty thirty seven. So we're not too far away there, right? So uh, you know, if we're if we're all still associated with Ole Miss at that time, that'd be great. You know, so all right, appreciate yeah, it, Stephen. As always. You, Chase. Enjoyed it, man. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger. For the ones who get it done.